Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University. And our guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy is a professor of Bible as a specialist in New Testament and in the study of the book of Hebrews, especially so. Uh, She teaches at Wheaton College outside of Chicago and is an old dear friend and has become a regular guest on this show. We've had her discussing some uh, Pauline epistles uh, throughout this year a couple times, and now we get to have her in her sweet spot of the book of Hebrews. So I'm so excited uh, to get to share her with all of you. Our text this week is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, 5 through 12. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others that they may benefit too. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. Would you be willing to read the the passage? Sure. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made pure purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you're mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You've made them for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word, the word by which you made all things, and your word that was spoken through the prophets your word that was spoken definitively in these latter days through your son. And now as we meditate on these written words from 
the era soon after you sent your son forth. We ask, Lord, that our eyes and ears, our minds and our hearts would all be opened by your Holy Spirit, that we may see and hear and act in accordance with your word and will. I ask this for Amy and for myself and for all those listening in. May we be equipped by your Spirit for the purpose that you have for this word in our time. For no word that comes forth from your mouth will return to you void. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I must say that it must be a total relief for our listeners when you read scripture because I read so slow and you read wonderfully fast. I, it was so, it was so Amy. I was like, wow, she's just cooking. <laughs> but it was a long passage and already on a longer, actually a longer passage that the lectionary has yeah. kind of broken up into two chunks. Right. But yeah. So what, what stands out here? What are kind of some key things? And we're going to be in Hebrews for about seven weeks, right. I believe on the show. So, and you're the first one. So okay. You can start wherever you want, Amy. What is it that our listeners kind of need to know when we get started in the book of Hebrews? What are some key observations about this text that kind of set us up for Mm -hmm. what this text is all about? Yeah. One reason I love Hebrews is that it does begin with these very deep reflections on the person of Christ. And so if if you find deep theology in scripture energizing and exciting, then this is a beautiful text. And as it is the seeds that lead to the doctrine of the church, you really don't have a clear example in scripture. I, I mean, maybe you do, but I think this is one is just so beautiful that you have the affirmation of Christ's divinity, the way in which he reflects God, the Father, right alongside this robust affirmation of his humanity. So um, I appreciate the lectionary in that you get a sense of both without reading the full of the two chapters. I mean, I would encourage preachers to reflect upon what comes in the in-between, and even it kind of cuts off a little oddly in verse 12 because Jesus keeps speaking in verses 13, in verse 13 with two different citations. So, so don't, don't feel like you're limited by that, but it is a nice way for our listeners to hear kind of the main points of reflecting God, truly being human. This is the nature of Christ. And really that's so much of what the letter is about. Who is Jesus? (laughs) Why does it matter? How does that affect my life? These are basic questions that we wrestle with today. And that's really what this audience I think is struggling with as well. Yeah. So he's so high above and beyond us, mm-hmm. yet thoroughly also one of us. Absolutely. And both sides of that equation, which again, we, we got to be careful not to read too much back into the text mm-hmm. from later development, although those later developments are rooted in texts like these, obviously, right. or at least they're connected to the reality that mm-hmm. texts like these are attesting. How's mm-hmm. that? Well said, yeah. But nevertheless, that two-sidedness is kind of crucial for then the whole argument of Hebrews Absolutely. in terms of his priesthood. Mm-hmm. The the whole logic of priest is not going to work if he's not one of us. Right. And yet the the efficacy and perfection and once for all character Mm -hmm. is connected to his his exaltedness, his sublimity, his Mm -hmm. divinity, his deity, however we want to name that. Obviously, that's not the way that it's put. The term is, right, it's uh, what? Radiance of the glory of God. Yeah. 
and the the precise imprint of his nature. Mm-hmm. It just dawned on me when you said that there's that juxtaposition of two. You you really get a you can almost grab them from the two chapters. He's the radiance of God's glory, yet he is not ashamed mm. to call us brothers. Yes. Right. So glory and shame. Oh yes. Right. He's he is the very reflection of God's glory, and yet he is sharing in what should be a shameful thing and yet he, right. he doesn't see it that way exactly right? exactly so. you get the, the those christological moves which reflect on the supremacy of christ then make his humanity all the more powerful because he's not just like some nice guy that's walking around he is god and has ever been god and he that adds the the strength of the, the author's point and he decided to be human for you for to taste death on your behalf no that's great well let, let's zoom in on that mm-hmm. opening for four verses for a second mm-hmm. if you're willing well first of all my recollection is of course there's no punctuation in our oldest manuscripts but right this is seems to be in the structure of like one big old sentence, yes. right? which is really hard to pull off in English right. translation. But. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you said that. I think that's, I grieve if people don't know that because <laughs> it's just beautiful. It shows his strength as a rhetor, right? As a communicator. But it, it also gives you the sense there's so much he wants to say about Jesus. There is a breathlessness to it. So maybe my speed of reading is <laughs> I was really trying to not pause because I was trying even with the tone of my reading to say yes. this is one sentence he has so much he wants to say about who jesus is and he just has to get it all out so i mean probably but i think this is a great thing to emphasize one through four in english are one sentence and it's not just that greek doesn't have punctuation the earliest manuscripts don't have punctuation but structurally it is built upon that the finite right. verb here is that god spoke and then when you have the introduction of the sun, everything is a dependent clause that hangs on and describes the sun. Last time I remember, and I didn't do this again today, but I preached on Sunday nights at my church I, mm. when I was a pastor in back in Jersey where we knew each other first. I did Sunday nights. I went through Hebrews like it took a year. Wow. Um, cool. I don't know if they enjoyed it, but I did. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Sunday morning had more variation in strategy to it. Sunday wow. evening was just like, oh, okay. I'll just go through a book of the Bible and we'll see how long it takes. Yeah. But uh, my recollection preparing for those sermons is I think there's seven subordinate clauses in this. Yes. Does that match your count? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So that is um, not lost on this author, right? No, if he, if he's kind of – Oh, ooh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> thinking about the Jewish context, numbers matter, right? Right, right. But I mentioned that for our listeners that you know if, if you're studying this text and you're wanting to go deeper with it, yes. you don't have to. Obviously, Amy and I would love for you to you know take two years off of your life and 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 go into a cave and learn Greek, uh, but because we know it would would bless you. But yes. you don't actually have to know the Greek to track that. If someone like you know like we say, there's a main clause. God spoke. Yes through the prophets, but now in these latter days through His Son, and then comma, then the rest are dependent clauses kind of modifying some. Yes. And you can just track that in the mm-hmm. English. You could even put a little number next to each mm, yeah. phrase and see those as, okay, these are all like a list of, you almost think of like uh, when they like announce like the queen, you know, they list yeah. off all her titles, right? Yes. Like the, the queen of England is still defender of the faith. That's like mm, one of her official right. titles <laughs> granted by the Pope uh, to Henry VIII before the split. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, but they kept the title. <laughs> 
So, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's like these honorific titles, mm-hmm. I guess. You could go through each one of them. Yeah. And, and actually, John, that comparison, I think, is totally fitting to what's going on here. Because oh, how this so? is set at the moment of Christ exaltation. Inaugur- it's an inaugural kind of text. And oh. so having sat down at the, having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and received the same that is better than the angels for to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son. And um, so this is, I think the author is picturing the moment that Jesus having died, rose in again, is now seated at the right hand of God. And it is like a proclamation. Here's who he is. And when, when you have inaugurations, you often do these lists of what are their relationships. And I think that's oh. a lot of what is going on here. How, who is he with respect to God? Let's name all of that as we think about him taking this seat of honor. Yeah. So it's relations to God, but also, well, I mean, those are the statements that are being celebrated, right? But in the opening sentence, verses one through four, some of these are also like accomplishments, right? Yes, it's kind of like much. things he's yeah. achieved, like, mm-hmm. Oh, what is it in game? It's Game of Thrones where they have the Khaleesi has all these titles, like she's breaker of chains and mother of dragons, like and and it's things that you've done. That done. They're right. kind of like names, but they're also they're also narrating mm. these great accomplishments. Yes, you know. Yes, which is important not to think of this as kind of a static description of his identity, but rather a kind of like you say. Uh, that's important, I think, that you to see this chapter as a kind of ascension or session at the right Right. hand moment. And, you know, I think you're going to have him on, but Ken um, has done some wonderful work on the narrative substructure of this. And and he's definitely convinced me that it is telling a story. It's it's, it's calling forth a story that the audience would be familiar with because they're Christ confessors already. So most Hebrews interpreters read this opening chapter as a statements of things they already agree on the author and his, and his readers. Uh, so he doesn't need to okay. convince them how wonderful Jesus is. They've already bought into that, but he's just kind of celebrating with them, reminding them of his majesty before he goes into what seems like the d- more difficult portions, which are talking about Christ's priesthood, because that hadn't been explicitly talked about, at least in our other Christian documents. But he lays that groundwork by saying, let's celebrate who Christ is, what we already know and believe. As this son, this royal figure, Mm -hmm. this enthroned one, Jesus is Lord. I mean, this isn't, you know, these are a four chapter explication of what it means to confess Jesus is Lord, you know? Right. right. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore it some more. Mm. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Amy Peeler. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four, and then chapter two, five through 12. Let's, let's zoom in on chapter two now for a little bit. How about five through even just nine? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll dip into, cause where this break off is clearly the lectionary just wants space. I mean, the argument goes all the way to the end of the chapter and they're just trying to make a reasonable length. Right. Uh, but right. so let's just zoom in on five to nine for a moment. Sure. Would you be willing to? to offer just to read that in whatever translation you like, maybe your own. Okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) For he did not subject to angels the coming world concerning which we are speaking. And someone witnesses somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? 
You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've subjected all things under his feet. For in subjecting to him all things, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus, the one who was made a little lower than the angels through the suffering of death, having been crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for all. So the striking thing here is, and and this is a place where especially the question of inclusive versus exclusive translations becomes really key. Because the psalm itself is using singular masculine language. So son of, what is man? Anthropos, which of course is kind of the term that's used for humanity as previous generations would say man and mean all humans. The Um, human. The human, exactly. Um, But then the question comes and and really as I read the NRSV, which, you know, I understand the decisions that they've made, they make it into a plural. So the psalm is a singular, and even the the author's reflections on the psalm are in the singular. He's talking about one man. And the question is, is he talking about Adam? Is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about both? But what they've done in Uh. order to show the impact for all humanity and to have an inclusive translation is to change those to plurals. So now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. But you heard when I translated it, which was a bit more wooden, for in subjecting all things to him, singular, he left nothing that is outside of his control. So it's a very complex section uh, where where I land, if that's appropriate to say, to kind of cut to the chase, and then, you know, your listeners can decide how they want to navigate this, is that I do think the author is appealing to a psalm that's talking about humanity, celebrating the ways in which God has put humanity uh, at this high place over creation. But he's taking that psalm to say, look, I can read this as a narrative of the life of Jesus. So if it's the case that humans are always just a little bit below angels, What he said about the son in the first chapter means that Jesus wasn't always a little lower than, or excuse me, I should be more precise. The son wasn't always a little lower than the angels, but became so when he takes on flesh Mm. and blood and now is exalted again above them. And so it become what was true of humanity always. They're always just a little below the, the angels. And that's a great thing becomes a moment in the life of the son for a little while. And the author is playing upon this phrase, brakute, which can be just a little bit, like quality, just a little bit below the angels, or time for just a little while. And I think he is um, using that ambiguity to transform the psalm into a narrative about Jesus. But then I think the NRSV is, it makes sense, because what happens to Jesus then sets the template for all humanity. He makes it possible that eventually all things will be under our feet and we too will reign over creation as God intended, but only because he led the way. Yeah, that's so tricky how to get that set up right. Mm. You know, I, I mean, this is a silly parallel, but I'll just throw it out there. <laughs> I I always, and, and listeners, longtime listeners of the show are familiar with my particular pet peeves as they inform my interpretive preferences, but I, I find the headings in the scriptures. I often will tell like my, you know, 
you know, teenagers in, in a Bible study, I'll say, the headings are there to help you find stuff and then ignore them. Right. You know, even, sometimes it's good to just cross them out, but okay. like in a light pen so you can still see them so you can find. Because mm. they're really helpful for finding stuff. Right. But, uh, but they often will frame something. Yes. You know, they're not in the original text. But if you're a person reading the Bible, there's no clear indication that these are being added. You think right. they're part of the text, right. you know? So anyway, there's one that bugs me a lot, which is the in Genesis 32, most mm-hmm. translations will say, Jacob wrestles with God, hmm. you know? And I'm like, well, but that kind of gives it away, man. Yeah. Like, it's like, because you think it's like Esau or some stranger or whatever. Right. And the, and the, this passage is so careful to not ever make it mm. stated directly. Right? Yeah. Now, why did I bring that up? I bring it up here because it's one of these things where in some ways the NRSV is, mm. and other more inclusive translations is in a way telling us exactly the point, yes. which is that the more general universal meaning of the human mm-hmm. in Psalm 8, that that vision is going to be achieved. That is the end game. Yes. So the question is, do you want to, f- do you want to sh- foreshadow that? And you might have additional sort of gender language reasons for that. Right. Right. Um, but then do you undermine the singularity mm-hmm. of Jesus as mm-hmm. the, the mediator and right. And captain of our salvation, the one who accomplishes that. Yeah. You know, it's actually a tricky question. It's not a. It really is. Yeah. Because wherever you land on the interpretation of how Hebrews is reading Psalm 8, Mm -hmm. whatever whatever Hebrews thinks Psalm 8 is saying, and I know that's a big debate, right? Right. In Hebrews studies, right? That uh, wherever you land on it, the the end game is going to be very similar. Yes. Right. So the question is how much of that to. To hint at in your translation. And this is a broader question for preachers and teachers of the scripture is like, yes. do you want to foreshadow stuff or do you want to surprise people? It's even a preaching question. Do you want yeah. to tell people what you're going to tell them before you tell them? Or do you take them on a trip and then, right. then they're, you know, like when I get asked to preach, sometimes they ask for a title and I want to give them something real vague. Like yes. it'll be about God. Yes, you know, right. I don't, they don't want them to know that I'm right. going to come and talk about racism because they'll yes. have their guard up. I want, them to, yeah, yeah. I want to trick them halfway right. through the sermon that that's what it was about all, the, all of a sudden. Yeah. I, I, I really like that language of those inclusive translations are giving the end game. And I think that's correct, though I'm reminded of some of the conversation on this passage, I think in particular of some of the writings of Craig Kester, who I really appreciate as a very attuned interpreter of Hebrews he will call attention to this is the hope of the Jewish people and Ah. some of their disappointment. Like God set things up so that humanity should really reign over creation. And so some of their grief is why isn't this true? Why do we not see all things under the control, the stewardship of humanity? So yes, it's going to be end game, but it also I think is fitting to say this is what people were looking for, were hoping for. Ah, okay. And then then if you if you have a bit more of that general human view in verse eight, but we do see Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's actually accomplished it because he's now crowned with glory and honor. So I, I have tended, and maybe it's just because I, I tend to be a bit wooden in how I think about translation, but I've tended to want to emphasize the singularity so that correct, I think, do is give G- is given to Jesus in this passage, but I really do see various reasons why people would want to have this general. Yeah, and I don't know. It could be really interesting 
if a preacher could play with these themes of Jesus as our representative and what we hope for, I think there'd be a way to really bore Mm. your listeners by going into kind of the singular plural grammar, but there could also be a really healthy way to talk about these desires that Jesus meets. Yeah, the singular plural is the background for then something that can be then rendered more rhetorically. Right. That would connect rhetorically in our own time. Yes. Right? Yes. And the question, of course, becomes, is that going to be an important thing in a sermon focus? And if so, then, okay, plumb that and find a – let me pitch a crazy idea. I love that we're talking about this, although there's so many other verbs that we might want to talk about. (laughs) I've never run this by you, Amy, and Mm. some of our listeners will have heard me use this term. But I have been experimenting, but I just started doing this, this, yeah. this Lent, with when I see, I do to the Gospels, I haven't tried it here yet, that when Jesus says, son of, son of man, mm-hmm. right? Again, that language of man is just, it's arcane. Right. For me, for right. me the, the, the gendered exclusivity of it is almost like the second factor. Mm. The first factor is it just sounds old-fashioned. Oh, yes. Right? right? And, and I'm okay sounding arcane if I want to make a point, right? Mm-hmm. But- but it's a, I find it to be a distraction. Mm-hmm. But saying, turning it into a plural, like or hu- I really can't stand humanity because it isn't humanity. Mm. That's a, that's an abstraction, right? Right. It's humans mm-hmm. or the human or human beings. Yeah. So when people say humanity, like God forgave humanity, no, he didn't. He forgave right. humans. Yeah. Like humanity as a concept doesn't need forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> like That's humanity fair. and humanity as a concept is actually pretty stable. God right. had the idea of what a humanity is. So that's more nature than substance. So anyway, now I'm getting way too philosophical. Sorry, but, but like humans, human being, that's all great, but that's still, it's such a mouthful. Yeah. So I'm giving my case before my example, okay. but I want you to I want you to like it, Amy. That's what's going on. I'm so insecure with you because I respect you so much as a scholar. But so I've been trying son of Adam. I've been using this all the time now. Because of course, in the original, uh here it's only the second one. The first one in Hebrew is it's a niche or a nosh. Uh what is a, a man? Yeah. It's gendered there. But the second one is is Ben Adam, mm-hmm. a son mm-hmm. of Adam. Yeah. And it's not that hard to explain to people that the word Adam is also just the word for man. Right. And that's not too hard to explain. It's a quickie. And, but when you hear son of Adam, I don't think when I hear son of Adam, it has the double meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's used in CS Lewis for boys or sons of Adam. And right. So you still have the gendered problem, but at least it's like, it's a singular, it's like a collective singular. Yeah. In yeah. a way that Son of Man was, but we've lost that. Yes. I don't know. It's a crazy idea. I don't know how, what you think of it. You probably think it's terrible. No, no, I don't at all um, for two reasons. One, I think it works for Hebrews in particular. And that actually directs oh, okay. me back to another point that I wanted to talk about in this next section. Because I, I was struck in the translation of verse 11. Uh, for the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, all yes. are, well, the, the NRSV, as I read it previously, said all have one father. But as you know, mm. as your listeners will probably know, that it's very ambiguous there. The Greek there is just ex hinos pontes. All are from one. One. Yes. And so it-, it Oh, do you uh, take that as being from Adam? Many do. Maybe. And, and okay. I, I, in my dissertation, I argued You're father. such a scholar. Many do. <laughs> well, Some I think do. I, might have, I might have adjusted my thinking because in my dissertation, I argued for father. 
because okay. I was writing about fatherhoods. So it was important for me and for my <laughs> argument to find one more piece of evidence, it. right? Exactly. Yeah. But I don't think that's wrong. I actually think that's that's within. But um, I'm more comfortable with the fact that this author uses terms maybe intentionally ambiguous ah. to capture more than one idea. Uh, now, some people don't like that. They can they say, well, he only had one thing in mind. Well, we don't know what was in his mind. And the narrative, the the um, impact of the text works in such a way that you could think of both. And actually, I think that's quite fitting to what Hebrews is doing in one and two, as we talked about at the beginning. Is he from God? Absolutely. Is he from Adam? Yes, he is. So I actually like it because I think that might alert readers to what's coming, or alert listeners to what's coming mm. later. Well, it makes me think of Luke, who obviously didn't write the book of Hebrews, but there are some interesting. You can tell they're both. Second generation is too strong. I mean, I probably do think that, but I don't want to yeah. take a stand on that. Luke and Hebrews clearly both represent a further development yes. of that. Yes. Right? And, so uh, Luke, yeah. Luke in chapter three right. does the genealogy in reverse exactly. and ends with son of Adam, comma, son, son of, of God. God. Exactly. Yes. And so the all from one would refer to at in that genealogy, clearly, all from one would refer to either of those. Exactly, yeah. And in this particular passage, chapter two, the emphasis is on the common humanity. Right, exactly. Christ, but yes. without, without denying. But in a way, them all being from one father, well, of course, that's true of all creatures. Whereas, like, you know, like mm. the trees and the – I've never thought about this question – so I'm sorry I'm disagreeing with your dissertation. It sounds like you're <laughs> you're not sure that you do it. You exactly. agree with it anymore exactly. either. <laughs> I've never thought about this question, but the all from one there, that's one where I would prefer to leave it ambiguous for the hearer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Recognizing that that at least in terms of the logic of the passage, neither is ruled out is maybe I think what Yes. would might be the stand you might be comfortable exactly. Exactly. saying. Right. Um because, yeah, they're all coming from the Father. That's that's also being emphasized here. Right. And uh, I think that's actually connected to the shame issue. Um, because oh, say he, more about that. Yeah. Okay. So he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters because he, too, is from Adam. He's taken on flesh and blood. He sympathizes with them. That's the human side. But he's also not ashamed because God, too, has taken them on as children. Mm. And you actually get that in verse 10. For it's fitting for the one, and I do think that's God, him, through whom are all yeah. things and because of whom are all things, not apart from the Son, but you know, chapter one, right. they're it, doing it, would, it would say together. through, it would say through or in right. if it was referencing the son. Probably, right. right. But notice what God does then leading many huios unto glory. Yes, sons. He's leading sons to glory. So he's already said, you know, humanity, a portion of humanity is sons. And so, and he's leading them to glory. So by virtue of both Christ's suffering as a human and by virtue of the fact that God has chosen to call these humans sons. Notice I started to say adopt and I rejected that because there's no adoption language in Hebrews, even though there's uh, a heavy emphasis of sonship in relationship to God. Uh, this author never uses adoption. But because of that relationship between God and, and these other brothers and sisters of Christ, that that's an added it's additional reason that he's not ashamed. So I really do think that the author is allowing both Adam and God Oh, and I'll say one more thing about why I like your son of Adam pertaining to oh, gender. Yeah. You were saying all the compliments so- you have for me and are would be great. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. 
it's still ex- exclusive, right? It's it's Adam. Yeah. But then you have to explain Adam is. But if if we're talking about Christ, how was he a son of Adam? Well, only because he came from the body and the flesh of Mary. Yeah. So she is the unstated assumption in a correct doctrine of the incarnation. So if he's from Adam, it's because of her. So she's there as um, a silent or an unnamed witness. So it's not as exclusive that as you might imagine. Oh, interesting. I'll have to think about that some more. I I may not keep using that, but I'm going to use it until it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've been so, I, I, son of man is just so crucial to the gospels. Right. Right. Um, you, you know me, I'm, pretty deeply committed to inclusive language for humanity. Right. So I, I'm often torn. So, mm. But sometimes a tornness and a tension between values is an opportunity for creativity, you know, to try to experiment and find something different. Oh. Well, let me ask you this, and then we'll, then we'll take a break for our final segment. Sure. I know this was at a side point, but you said that there's no adoption ah. in the book of Hebrews. Of course – as you know, and many of our listeners would know, the word for adoption as sons in Paul mm-hmm. is of just the verb form in a way of, of weos. That's right? true. It's, it's, That's so true. It's, it's not – and I ask this to ask you, mm-hmm. are you saying that the term adoption does not appear in Hebrews, which is absolutely the case? Mm-hmm. Or is it that the concept of adoption is foreign? Because it, this, this – if you say call them sons, you're leaving open that it could be that he's revealing mm-hmm. by way of naming an original intention mm-hmm. or an original fact that we already – I mean I, that's sort of implied in Luke's genealogy, right? That, right. That's, I mean like – and I think it's implied in Psalm mm-hmm. – I mean I think Psalm 8, Psalm 8 in its original context. It's not talking about adoption. The, this, being a son of God is a function of being a human being. Right. Now the covenant and the covenant is designed to enact that. So mm-hmm. their adoption. So I guess this is a deep theological question about the relationship between creation and covenant. Or, yeah. Right. So so it's it, this is too big to solve in two minutes. But are, do you sense that even the concept of adoption is foreign to the Book of Hebrews, or is it just that the terminology is foreign? The concept as so intensely developed by Paul is foreign. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I think for. Well, I'm going to say two things about that. One, this author is writing to an audience that has already confessed Christ. And so he he does not tell their beginning story. And uh, so in some okay. ways, there's a bit of a, an absence there, a silence that he said, you are sharers of Christ. You are confessors of Christ. The first time he mentions humanity, they are already those who are standing to inherit salvation. So they already stand in relationship who inherits, but one's child. So they already stand in that relationship. We don't get, we don't get a story of how they come to be in this relationship. But if we do get some kind of glimmer, I think it would be in the latter part of chapter two that's not included in the lectionary here, but it's good to know where this text is going, that you get this sense that um, everyone is under the control of the devil who has the power of the fear of death, and Christ rescues those who, through the fear of death, throughout the whole of their lives, were subject to slavery. So that's really kind of redemption language, um, mm-hmm. right? So that's so adoption in the ancient world, of course, is not unrelated to that. There, you can kind of adopt someone and redeem them and move them from status to slave to son, but it's just not developed in the same way that it is in Paul. But there definitely is a transfer from this 
enslavement to the devil to being freed from that and being a sharer of Christ. That's really helpful. The assumption is, or at least the language that's used is, when you're part of Christ, then you are a child of God. You're a son of God. And then you stand with all the rights and responsibilities of that relationship. That's helpful. It really helps me sort of see where our gaps are in our, in the, in our knowledge of the theology of the author of mm-hmm. Hebrews and important differences from Paul that's very hard for us to not bring as baggage to the, right. So, so I loved that you said that. I was just very curious. And it, it could be that when he says bringing many sons to glory, mm-hmm. verse 10, or made like his brothers in every way, verse 17, yes. that the story that is being told may not be one of becoming sons, mm-hmm. but of sons being made glorious, yes, right? right? Or becoming brothers, but rather brothers who are being liberated, redeemed, yes. bought yes. back. And I like how you've left open, we don't know if we'd press him on it or he wrote another letter, he may have, right. may have spoken of this as something that came to be rather mm-hmm. than as something that always was. And we don't have to fall off the log on that question because the, the end game's the same oh, exactly. <laughs> again, right? Exactly. Same with right. the other problem, but it helps us notice little details. And yes. brilliantly, you got to, you slipped in a couple extra verses at the end with your answer to my exactly. questions. Right. That was right. very clever, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. Sure. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Amy Peeler, and we're looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapters 2, 5 through 12. And in, instead of uh, rereading the passage, I'll just say, like we've said many times on this show before, the, the lectionary is not a straitjacket. It's a springboard, mm-hmm. right? You can jump off from there. So I would imagine, depending on what sermon direction you might want to go, you'd end up selecting either a smaller passage Right. Or a larger chunk that it can, that includes the verses that are going to be key for mm-hmm. what you want to develop. Having said that, if you were, if you were up to bat to preach on this text some, some given Sunday, where would you focus your energies, Amy? Yeah. Um, that's a really hard question. And maybe this is just a good moment of honesty. The more you know a text, I think sometimes the more overwhelming it feels to teach it. Yeah. And so, I probably would go, I really, that felt fresh to me to read one through four and then skip down to five through 12. I mean, I know what's in between, but that felt like a really fresh approach. So I would probably do some kind of comparison between what is said of Christ in the beginning and what is said of Christ in in chapter two. So maybe along the lines that we were talking about earlier, I think people often need a reminder of what God did on our behalf, right? That that Mm. to kind of sketch out who Jesus is and his majesty and then say, and he takes on flesh and blood and he suffers. I don't know, maybe that's too too often repeated, but getting people to grasp onto really who he is and then what he did. And really, I probably would spend more time in the second part because my sense, at least in the circles in which I run, is that people have a little bit more of a difficult time imagining Jesus as human than they do thinking of him as divine, right? He is now seated at God's. We pray to him. That, that, that I think we would probably agree as much as the author of Hebrews and his community did. Jesus is great. I still think we struggle a bit to know what it means that he is sympathetic 
that he takes on flesh and blood that he learned uh, as, as that will be asserted later in the book. So, so I might spend some more time there with his tasting death and his being crowned, but only because that happened through suffering. Yeah, that's so good. I think, so here's just some, like, if we were to turn that into points, which is lame, but it helps, it helps our listeners sometimes uh, start, start composing. I mean, I see right away that you've got at least three things here. Verse nine, the the word in terms of what he shares with us, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you could list a few of the things, maybe seven, right? Just kind of summarize those in seven Uh words, just one word. like, here's seven awesome titles about Jesus, Mm -hmm. but here's the payoff. And then go in, but he's also called son of Adam or son of man, you know, like contrasting that with son of God, right? Right. Um, And then you could exposit a little what that means and its history. And then moving on, you see the, where is it? When does he first call us brothers? Not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 11. 11, there it is. But before that, you also get the he who sanctifies, Mm -hmm. right? And one who suffers also there, right? Yeah. So you get some of, you could list a few of these things. So he have all these honorific titles, but right. then you could have a list. Yes. Uh, you know, son of Adam, a, a sufferer. Yeah. Right. Uh, one who sanctifies. Yeah. Right. Not one who's just holy. That means he's holy. He, he was already holy. Distant. But right. he's actively making yeah. others holy. Yeah. But the big one, I think the coolest one is the brothers. I think yeah. that's the biggie. Yes. Yes, which I think is often very striking for people. I just taught Hebrews a few weeks ago, a week-long intensive, and this was something that jumped out. You know, this is language that I'm very familiar with and kind of in all the time, but they were like, my students did say, wow, he's our brother. That, that's, I know, you that's don't hear it That's not something that we are, t- he's our Lord, absolutely, no question. Hebrews agrees, but Hebrews says he's our sibling. Well, and actually you could even say, I think in our in the, in the church, kind of modern evangelical church especially, we have Jesus as Lord mm-hmm. and we might have Jesus as like lover, like we're super intimate, right. Right. but we don't have that immediate, that middle space mm-hmm. gets missing mm-hmm. that brother, right? Yes. Which is, it's the intimacy of a lover, not with the sexual connotation, right. although sexual in the sense of coming from the same source, right? sharing right. a parent, it's that closeness of a sibling. Yeah. Yet also the distinctness and maybe, and clearly he's the elder brother. That's like just the logic of the passage. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so there's also that distinction and the looking up to, and I feel like the language of brother, especially when we use it for him. Yeah. Because we're brothers and sisters. So you get the, you get the inclusive language issue comes up again, but to call Christ our brother is this almost perfect mediation of Lord and because the lover thing just doesn't always click with people. Right. I, there's beauty right. and there's truth there. I'm not against it, but yeah. it, it creeps people out sometimes. Right, right. But we use it because because the Lord, the ship of Jesus is so distant to yes. us. We need to bring it close. Yeah. But the, I don't know, it's a thought. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I have I, preached on this passage before and it was probably my favorite sermon I ever preached hmm. from Hebrews. Hmm. And it was that phrase, he is not ashamed of me, mm. Mm. right? Oh, I even wrote it on a little card and handed it out to everybody. Wow. And I still have that card somewhere. I wow. should find it. I think it's in my old NIV back when I was preaching out of the NIV. But uh, And I told a story of my brother mm. uh, who always picked on me and was just the worst <laughs> like at home, right? But I remember I told a story of being at junior high at church and there was these older kids, just one year older, who were always just kind of teasing me, picking mm. on me a little bit. 
and how one time my brother just like shut one of them down, you know, he's five years older than me, just like put them in their place. Like, like they were teasing me at something they saw in my house during an open house or something, you know? And he was like, no, that was actually my toy. Like I was playing with my brother, you know, just shut him down. Right. Wow. And it was that, you know, for as much as a hard time he would give me at home, like he was not ashamed of me to be associated with me and to defend me. Hmm. And I imagine everyone has some kind of story of someone taking yeah. their side, whether a sibling or not. Yeah. Although that's a standard sibling thing, right? I see it in our kids all the time. Like, right. <laughs> Sam can just be awful to Clara, but if someone else is giving her a hard time, he right. he gets pretty angry yeah. and defensive of her. Yeah. You know? No, I feel like that could be a, an excellent payoff. I, I would recommend two authors who do oh, some yeah, reflection please. on on Christ as brother, um, Patrick Gray and Kevin McCruden. Um, and it, and it's kind of in ver- various places in their writings and articles, but they do some reflection on on the important role of the elder brother. Um, I mean, we kind of know that from Israel's stories, but even in the Greco-Roman world, the elder brother held a very important role in the family. And so oh. that the associations that first readers would have, which I think that can add it's just a different element to consider. We all kind of maybe can imagine a sibling or most of us if we, you know, have siblings in the home, but it's, it's fun sometimes to see, well, what did that mean in an ancient context? Especially, I think that would have a lot of impact because, you know, so many people would have lost their parents so much younger. Um, oh, and so okay. the, old- so the elder bird. Elder brother kind of takes over as the head of household. Right. Okay. Which, of course, that's actually something very interesting about Hebrews because God never dies. And so even the theme of inheritance doesn't quite work because how can God give an inheritance because God's never going to die? But all that to say. The analogy breaks down and breaking down is the point. Exactly. If it it never broke down, it wouldn't be an analogy. It would just be. Right. (laughs) But could I say one more thing about a sermon idea? Because as you were speaking, this could be really powerful. So if if you do kind of start, if one were to start with these kind of seven amazing things about Jesus and then move to a treatment of the the human side of who he is, I would make the connection point having made purification for sins, because that is the one preview of everything to come. And so I might like list the seven, aren't these amazing? And then kind of go back and say, but, but what about this having made purification for sins? Like, what is that speaking about? And really, that is the entry point by which everything else is said. That's why he has to take on flesh and blood. That's why he has to suffer. That's why he is our elder brother who rescues us. So I there's already, it's not like you've got one list and a second right. list. They're joined by that phrase. Right. And that's confirmed then in verse 17 when the language of brothers returns. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest right, right. in the service of God. Yeah. To, right. To make propitiation for the sins. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Like, I would just preach on verse 17 and just develop all these themes from there because wow. it combines them now. It's, uh, it's now. all together. Yeah. Yeah. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Or I could just do that. Mm. Just that line from verse 11b. It's just so cool. It really just, is. He is not ashamed to call mm. us brothers, you know. Talk about his glory. Talk about his embracing our, the shame and suffering yes. of our life. Real quick, this is kind of ruining the flow just there, but what was the first name of the other authors? Patrick Gray and something McCruden? Oh, Kevin McCruden. Kevin McCruden, okay. 
And Kwame Bediako, B-E-D-I-A-K-O, mm-hmm. is a he's from Ghana, an African theologian, and he really identifies this elder brother theme as, as really helpful in West African oh, theology because of the notion of elders and the relationship oh, to even dead elders, ancestor, right, uh, as a big part of the culture and religion there, and how to kind of as a as a point of contact to think through. Yeah, and he has a whole he has a whole article just on the epistle to hebrews as like the key for african christians anyway just a side note i think i might have seen that at one point but it's good to be reminded of that yeah i think guter assigned it to us back in theology too you know like 20 years ago (laughs) so (laughs) awesome well thank you so much amy appreciate the time you gave and thanks todd and eric for their production work can't imagine doing this without them thanks to all our listeners getting the word out about the show thanks to tom adamson for the theme music and Thanks to our patron saints for supporting the show. Go to patreon.com slash fresh text if you want to find out ways to support the show and get some extra content. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.